You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. You're listening to the Tech Tank Podcast. I am Nicole Turner-Lee, co-host of this incredible conversation today. And this conversation is going to be interesting because it's very urgent and timely. As part of the bipartisan infrastructure law, Congress allocated $14 billion towards affordable broadband access through the Affordable Connectivity Program, or ACP for short. This program, some of you may remember, came out of the prior emergency broadband benefit issued during the pandemic, and it provides a $30 monthly broadband subsidy and a one-time $100 benefit towards an affordable internet-enabled device. But listen to this. After 23 million households have enrolled into the ACP, which has the support of an array of telecom companies with low-cost tiers and community-based organizations and others. The program is at a critical juncture and it's facing a looming crisis and the possibility of an abrupt stop in late April or May. The Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, who's responsible for administering this program, has also put a program freeze on any new applications. And folks, this is despite bipartisan support. I just published a blog about this. Everyone might lose from subscribers to providers to community-based organizations in addition to just the country at writ large if we don't continue this program. And for those of us who are interested in the digital divide, this is an important conversation because we haven't seen anything like this for quite some time. So today I'm joined by two friends. I know people who have been working on the ground on this, but most importantly, They are folks who come from an academic perspective on what is happening with not just the Affordable Connectivity Program, but broadband in general. Joining me today are Colin Reismith, the founder of the Digital Equity Research Centers, who I've known for ages, and another person I've known for ages is Fallon Wilson, doctor at that, who is the vice president of the Multicultural Media Telecom Council and director at Black Churches for Digital Equity. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Excited for this conversation. So listen, I want to jump right into this. Could you provide for people who may be less familiar with this program an overview of the current state of the Affordable Connectivity Program, ACP for short, and its importance in addressing the digital divide here in the United States? Alan, let's start with you. Sure. Thank you so much, Nicole. It's really an honor to be here. It's great to be with both you and Dr. Wilson today. So, yeah. So as you mentioned, uh, you know, there are 23 million households that are currently enrolled in the Affordable Connectivity Program. So that's one in six households are participating. And where we are today is that there are no new signups. this was as of February 7th. So there, the Federal Communications Commission has issued a wind down order. And as they say, the this is you know the, the last month for which the ACP can fully reimburse providers for this benefit is April 2024. So it is coming to an end and it will be incredibly 
um, you know, not helpful, obviously, for the 23 million households that are participating. You know, the program that has a $65 billion investment to promote broadband infrastructure and digital equity across the country, the ACP program is essential to the success of that program over the next five years. And, you know, this has been a very successful program. And there have been a lot of efforts to make sure that this program continues. But right now, what we're looking at, unless Congress, um, you know, creates and votes for an extension for this program, it will uh, come to a close. And Fal, let me have you jump in too. I mean, you have been working on issues related to digital divide as well. And, and where do you see the ACP providing that value to ensuring that, you know, no one is left behind? Um. I just, I tell the story consistently. We can only just look at the pandemic as like the ultimate story for why the ACP is so essential for communities to be connected, not only because the the internet is essential for economic, social, and political mobility, but also for me, it's the foundation of a future equitable AI future, right? And so the notion that we are having to discuss our conjole, our plead for this to be funded is just unacceptable. When we know that at the height of the pandemic, there were children in Taco Bell parking lots trying to get internet to complete their remote learning, or that seniors who lived in rural parts of the Black South were unable to get diabetes readings and medicines because they did not have an infrastructure for home broadband. It is essential that this program is funded because of those stories during the pandemic, which I think are the most visible and the most um, visceral in people's memory, even though we all know that for black and brown communities, the digital divide has been an ongoing conversation for many decades. And so for me, it is essential if we're building a future where technology is going to be able to promote economic, social, and political mobilities for communities, it is essential that everybody in this country have access to high-speed internet. Well, I am so glad you said that. Shameless plug. My book actually talks about all of that. (laughs) August 6th is a date at an available bookstore near you. And Fallon, I think it's interesting too. I mean, I love the way you sort of lay out, you know, the fact that the pandemic was a moment where people became attuned to this. But, you know, Colin, we've been dealing with this for probably decades when it comes to people not having access to the digital divide. And I'm curious for the both of you as well, and I'll go back to Colin for just a second, you know, how has federal and state policy landscapes sort of evolved, right? Because before the ACP, there obviously was Lifeline, uh, which is a much lower benefit. Um, And now we're seeing, you know, as Fallon has pointed out, like this incredible need to make sure people stay connected at a time when we're essentially moving away from an analog society. So like, how how have you seen the like federal and state policy landscapes evolve around the ACP, both from the beginning and now where we are now? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Nicole. I, you know, we need a permanent broadband subsidy period for qualifying low-income consumers. We know that people, for all the reasons that Fallon just laid out for us, that you know people are struggling in this country to be able to afford the high cost of internet. 
And it is, you know, what we've known for years is that for low-income individuals and families, paying for the internet is often a choice, right? Between paying for the internet and paying for food for that month. And, you know, these are issues related to poverty in this country. And, you know, the reality is, as you know well, Nicole, from all of your work over many years, that as long as we have poverty in this country, we will always have a digital divide. And so what that means, like the Lifeline program that was funded, started during the 80s under President Reagan to help people gain access to telephone, this is the same situation we're in with broadband. People need access to high-speed internet, and it needs to be available. It needs to be high quality. It needs to be affordable. And as long as we have, again, as we have poverty in this country, we are going to need a subsidy to help people get online in the same way that President Reagan during the 80s helped with create the Lifeline program to provide access to telephone. And so, you know, this is really where we're at today. And, and again, as we move forward, um, you know, we not we don't need to only, you know, fund the extension, which is uh, which is what a lot of us are are, are are fighting for right now is to have an extension to ACP. We need a permanent broadband subsidy. And, and I want to like dive into both of your brains around like, what's the problem? Um, Fallon, coming back to you, I mean, it's a problem that, you know, America sort of disdains at like anything that's a social safety net program. And they sort of see this as a social safety net and should they be seeing this as such? Or is it a case where, you know, some of the noise that was you know, formally attributed to programs like Lifeline, waste, fraud, and abuse, and eligibility, is that stopping any type of bipartisan support towards getting some type of uh, extension? I'm sure Colin probably can answer this way better than I can. Um, my arm sofa response, and this is not an MMTC response, would be, I think it's a political year. I think Politics is probably the, the main stopgap here. We all know that on the local level, at the state level, it has such excitement on both sides um, of both the Republicans and the Democrats, and everyone's excited and see it as a, a, a sustainable solution um, to ensure that communities who would no otherwise have access would have access. And so the only thing that I can surmise is that it's more about the upcoming presidential election and the complexities of who would rule the roost in the next year. Um, but Colin, what do you think? Yeah, because that's interesting. I love that analogy, right? At at points of this juncture, right, it's hard to get Congress to sit down and roll up their sleeves around what might be for the better of citizens. But I'm curious, Colin, like, is there other stuff that's sort of drizzling in from the lifeline conversation from uh, people who may be opposed to any type of extension of this? You know, I would agree that I think this is, you know, because of the year that we're in, this is a very difficult um, or becoming an increasingly difficult argument. On on the other hand, though, as we're saying, um, every district that has qualifying low-income consumers in the country benefits from this program. So, you know, this really is not a, or should not be a political issue when it is something that benefits 
every community. It benefits our neighbors. It benefits the people in our communities, the people in our churches and our schools. And, you know, this is just, and I think that, you know, what you find is there, there is support, but again, I would agree that in this political year, it just becomes so much more difficult. And there's evidence to what you all are speaking about. I mean, I just um, was mentioning about this blog I put out, right? And we pulled from some of the FCC data sheets that basically suggested that this is not a red or blue state issue, right? This is across the board. People, those those 23 million people, right, come from everywhere in the United States and from various backgrounds. And I found it really interesting that just recently we saw what over 600 organizations, including industry, labor unions and the like, uh, come alongside community based organizations to speak about this. Uh, Fallon, I am so like proud of you. I've known you for quite some time with the Black Churches for Digital Equity movement. And I've seen Black churches really take this on, you know, and take it on in the pulpit in particular, which you know could be hard to do um, in terms of supporting the need for affordable broadband access. How do we interpret that level of public support, uh, particularly from groups that have not traditionally been involved in this debate? Um, but see, even though those groups have not been involved in those in our DC Beltway debates, they have always had to navigate the digital divide for their communities. I just recently spoke to about 900 black church leaders this week about this specifically that in the early nineties, African-American churches had in their fellowship halls, public computing spaces where people could go in and apply for jobs. They were not teaching necessarily digital literacy skills. They were not teaching coding but they were hubs for people to apply for applications that needed to be submitted online. What I'm trying to say is I don't think this is new for them. It has never been new for us. I, I think when you live at the intersections of oppression, you never get to walk away from it. You never not get to see it. I just think we in the DC Beltway and often policymakers make assumptions that these historic marginalized communities, whether they are black, whether they are brown, um, whether they are within the rural Black South, that they are ignorant of the conversations we're having, um, but they are not because they deal with it firsthand. Um, and so, and so, I guess I can't. I and so for me, hearing hearing your question is like, ah, uh, it isn't new for them, and, and and they have always had to deal with this issue, and have always had ways in which they have felt to manage it. I think the challenge has always been is for lawmakers to, to pay attention to their constituents and to see exactly how they have navigated chronically underfunded libraries where we believe that digital access is available for everyone, but often underfunded in those communities. And churches and mosques and other faith-based institutions have often taken up the legwork in this space to provide these devices to provide to be a community tech hub um, to provide digital skills um, for their communities. Well, look, um, you're coming down my aisle, and I, I know I'm a bit older than Colin, but uh, this is what the community tech center movement was based on back in the '90s. And um, again, you know, to call, uh, uh, fell to your point. Um, I start my book talking about the community tech centers that I started in the 90s that were dealing with these issues before they became popularized during the pandemic. And that's where I think 
going back to you, Colin, like when you hear what Dr. Wilson is talking about in terms of the community effect, you know, how does an abrupt uh, distraction of giving this affordable benefit that we've not witnessed anywhere in our history when it comes to digital divide monies, um, what, what will that sort of scream out uh, uh, to constituents on the ground who have been working in this movement for many, many decades? Yeah, it's a fantastic question, Nicole. And, and as you pointed out, and as Dr. Wilson pointed out so clearly, this work has been going on for a long time before the pandemic made it. What I what I've been arguing is that, you know, the digital divide was a, was a kind of a private issue, right? Something that we, you know, that people who couldn't afford the internet, it sort of impacted them, you know, inside their homes. But when the pandemic happened, people were forced to go into public library, school parking lots, it became much more of a public issue, right? So there are many, many, many more people because it became more visible involved with this issue today. And I think that if you get rid of the ACP program, if we lose that benefit, it's, you know, it, it's, it's an affront to not only the people who benefit from the program the most, but every other organization, church, library, school, communities, coalitions across the country, which I've been tracking in my research, uh, the ecosystems that support this work are impacted. And so this has become a huge movement, a social movement for change in this country that by at its core we're, depends on affordable internet access. And so if we remove this program, we're setting back this enormous wave of social change, a social movement that so many people, 23 million people, and all of the people around them who are supporting those 23 million people will get um, impact, will, will be impacted, and we will all take a step well, I back. Think, I think this argument is so clear, right? That as a social movement, I love the way you talk about it. Sociologists love social movement theory. Um, that this is an important conversation to have when we talk about how we're actually going to narrow some of these digital disparities that are very much connected to systemic inequalities. I would also like to suggest, though, that there's a business side to this, and I'm wondering if both of you have thought about that, right? What impact could this have on the business side as well? Not just the ISPs that are, you know, participating in the low-income tiers where their floor has been able to accommodate those 23 million people in some way, but what about businesses, right? Uh, Colin, and 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 Fallon, will there be, be businesses, like, affected by this? Um, because I find it interesting that while this is rolling back, the money for deployment is rolling forward. Um, and when you think about local community economic development or national economic development for that matter, will we see some consequences as a result? Dr. Wilson, do you think that there'll be some kind of economic impact basically on the providers and suppliers of the digital ecosystem you who know, may not have subscribers? <laughs> I know, see, that's the crazy thing. I mean, I, you just, you just posed a very good question. And I'm sitting here saying that is a very interesting question. Um, you're right. De deployment has will not be stopping. And there will be availability, right? But yet there won't be the subscribers who need it the most because they still have to pay for it. I, oof. It, I, it may be, and maybe Colin and you have done like research on the supply, the, su the supply chain of like broadband. Cause I'm, I'm curious to know this myself. Um, I, 
That's interesting. I know, right? This is like the three of us academics need to sit down. And talk I, mean, about this. I, I, that's a, it's a <laughs> very interesting question. I mean, but see, this is, hmm, maybe, maybe this is a, this is me just anecdotally mind mapping a thought um, that perhaps as deployment rolls out and availability becomes a norm. I know that many of our internet service providers provide low cost internet options, right? Um, and perhaps there would be more of those types of like business models that come on yep. board to help onboard people that would lose when this subsidy goes away. Um, I I think, and perhaps I think about it on the more on a more um on a on a in, on a community individual level yep like the notion of unenrolling 23 million people yes i don't know what i i mean i think it will be costly for the companies and others to be able to cover the technical assistance and i and colin y'all have probably been in these meetings more so than i am because i've been dealing with acp um outreach wind up types of things with our churches as of late so i've not been in all of the specific meetings um but I suspect that there is going to be a cost there. And then also, I think a, a larger economic cost is that when you have to unenroll or help help 23 million decide how to switch to a low cost option if their provider has one, right? Or not get internet services. I think in the long term, we lose because those same community members are probably, and this is anecdotal, I don't know this, and maybe you have some data column that looks at it. I suspect that this engagement will affect future engagement of enrolling, re-enrolling them back if we do in fact go down the line of 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 the subsidy not being renewed and then coming back online at some other point. Yeah, I think yeah. very it will be a I think we all lose economically on this. Um, but I'm sorry, that is more of a ramble than a concise. Yeah. No, that that is exactly like the conversation I want to have. I mean, that was the purpose of the blog I wrote. Everyone loses, right? Because to your point, unenrolling 23 million people must sound, it, it sounds like a disaster, right? <laughs> but at the same token, there are economic impacts. And Colin, I'm not sure if you've thought about that, even with you know museums and libraries and other social institutions that have sort of been part of this ecosystem and have benefited from these new uh, policy developments. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I definitely want to um, second what uh, Dr. Wilson was saying that, you know, I think ultimately this unenrollment process, losing ACP, we lose trust, right? Communities lose trust in, pro you know, very, very successful programs like this that help people if you lose it and there is an extension or there is you know something else that comes along which we need we're, we're all fighting for right now uh it will be harder as was said so you know this is this is another layer of the challenge in terms of the economic um uh perspective my colleagues, uh, Dr. Brian Whitaker, Dr. Sharon Strover, who who I think you know, Nicole, um, have done uh, quite a bit of work actually looking at the economic benefits yes. of broadband, and and we know, and part of this right is just kind of common sense, but also from their really um, wonderful work, and and uh, Dr. Roberto Gallardo as well at Purdue have done fantastic work to say, and you know, using 
using evidence from their research to show that broadband access uh, in use and adoption uh, has tremendous economic uh, benefits. So, so we know this, right? We know the case. We can look at our own situations and the benefits for just three of us on this call and how it helps all of us in the work that we do and the benefits that, you know, everyone should have access. Everyone needs access because also there's the expectation that people do have right. access. And if we don't make sure that that's available, we're doing this country a disservice. No, and, I, and I think, you know, these points that we're making are so real because they're going to affect individuals. And I do think that more research needs to be done. I mean, New Street Reach Research has put out some um, industry level data with regards to the participating ISPs and the extent to which they'll have to roll back those customers or the expectations of customers. And you have to think about how many people did they have to hire to actually help with the program facilitation? You know, did they expand their call centers, et cetera? I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, the common excuse that we have heard from uh, folks who have been a little bit less aggressive about trying to push forth with the program has been that it's been difficult for people to enroll or, you know, there have been concerns about who's actually eligible I'd like to ask both of you as we sort of wrap up this conversation, you know, can we actually get an extension of this program and address some of those concerns on the other side to make it a win-win? Or are we just going to be at a stage that if the ACP doesn't survive this, that we really need to have a conversation around what constitutes universal service? Uh, Dr. Wilson, I'll start with you and then I'll wrap up with Colin. Is this a universal service conversation or is this something that maybe we can find some places where we can make this work for everybody? Um, I think when our Congress wants to create and implement, they do. I think it's about political will at this point. Um, I think, yeah, because people were, people always said we would have a digital divide but yet in the pandemic, we were able to pass the emergency broadband benefit. I mean, I just think it's political will. Um, I just, yeah. Why? Because I know I pay tax dollars and we have the, the resources to do so. I just think at this moment with a looming presidential election, and unfortunately that is like just keeping us from making good decisions right now. And I know there are all types of funding that's being held up, um, not just this. A conversation about universal service funds, I think there are a lot of folks having conversations about that right now. Perhaps we should be talking more there in addition to also, once again, mobilizing community organizations on the ground within states and municipalities to not only on the activist side lobby Congress, but you know, I'm not advocating that I am a nonprofit, but I for those who don't who have different nonprofit status, you can do these things, so be it. But I think we're losing out without thinking about how to make sure that on the ground constituencies across this country know fully what is happening. Um because number one, and, and part of it is, I suspect all the amazing organizations that got funding from the Federal Communications Commission to sign their communities up for the ACP are now having to do like wind down conversations 
and technical assistance without funding, let me just say that, without funding from the FCC um, to educate communities on how to figure out how to do this. Um, and perhaps part of that conversation that you have with community members is not only how to make decisions on what providers are, if you cannot afford it, what does it mean for you not to have it, but also to let them know that your Congress is not necessarily operating in the way that they need to, to really make decisions on this for sustainability. Um, I just think we're, I think we lo we're losing here because we're not doing a type of communication strategy that allows community members to know exactly how their representatives yeah, and you, are behaving Yeah, you just made me think space. about all of the people who have been involved with this outreach. Um, you know, thank you for reminding us that, you know, going back and winding down um, essentially is going to be a tough task for them as well. Colin, last, last thought. Yep, go ahead. Go ahead, Val. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was thinking like, Let me what? just... <laughs> We had funding to sign people up, to walk them through the process, to make sure they were connected to providers, to make sure they had the resources and make sure they understood the dimensions, to follow up, to make sure that they were connected. Now we have to walk back those steps Man. without resources. So not only the stickiness of unenrollment on the provider side, but the, the lack to yeah. Colin's point of social trust and Rest on on community organizations is also at at at. No, I appreciate that so much, and thank you for morning. highlighting that. I see another blog coming through. <laughs> Colin, wrap up comments on this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, just adding to uh, what uh, Dr. Wilson has said, you know, you know, I was just looking at, you know, how so while this program is wrapped up in political murkiness. At the end of the day, it's a very popular program, the Affordable Connectivity Program. I was just looking at some data from the AARP saying that, uh, you know, almost 80% of Americans 50 or older support the ACP. And so they, you know, they support Congress continuing to fund the program. So while they may be, again, sort of, you know, arguing and debating, uh, you know, in, in Washington, this is a popular program. And it also goes to similar programs like the Universal Service Fund that have funded technology access in schools and libraries and helped people gain access over many years. These programs are helpful and they do help people to uh, to move ahead in our society and our economy, and they need to be funded well into the future. Well, you know, I have to say to both of you, first and foremost, for those of you listening, the Brookings Institution is nonpartisan. We don't advocate or lobby, as Fallon said, because we're in a 501c3. It's just an important conversation to have and one that we've started to have um, and have had by the nature of me being at Brookings on digital divide issues. But I cannot stress as we wrap up just some of the points that you both have made in terms of, you know, one, how do you come to a bipartisan agreement, uh, particularly as we see things like the Affordable Connectivity Program Extension Act, the White House contributing support towards at least some temporary extension during a congressional uh election during a presidential election year. So I hadn't thought about that. And so thank you for bringing that up. And then I think the other things that I'm hearing is at the end of the day, this has been a longstanding problem and social trust is gonna be really important to people that we now have to go back to and disenroll from a program that got them through just some of the murkier times in the pandemic and more importantly, will move them into a future 
of technology and uh, Fallon AI being the next big hurdle if they don't have access. Thank you, Colin. Thank you, Fallon Wilson. I appreciate your insights. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Well, listen, folks, you've heard another action-packed, fun-packed. If you knew what it took to get online today uh, and have this conversation, courageous conversation on the future of the Affordable Connectivity Act, um, as I've mentioned, I've got a blog up, Everyone Loses If the Affordable Connectivity Program Ends, that you can find on the Tech Tank website uh, for all of our content that we generate at the Center for Technology Innovation. You are listening to the Tech Tank podcast. We take big tech policy bits and we turn them into palatable bites so that everyone understands what's happening in this landscape. Please join us for the next episode and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.